Autobiography of a Sexually Emancipated Communist Woman by Alexandra Kluntai. Section 2. The Years of Political Emigration. As a political refugee, henceforth I lived in Europe and America until the overthrow of Tsarism in 1917. As soon as I arrived in Germany after my flight, I joined the German Social Democratic Party, in which I had many personal friends, among whom I especially numbered Karl Liebknecht, Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Kautsky. Clara Zetkin also had a great influence on my activity in defining the principles of the women workers movement in Russia. Already in 1907, I had taken part as a delegate from Russia in the first international conference of socialist women that was held in Stuttgart. This gathering was presided over by Clara Zetkin and it made an enormous contribution to the development of the women workers movement along Marxist lines. I put myself at the disposal of the party press as a writer on social and political questions. And I was also frequently called upon as an orator by the German party, and I worked for the party as an agitator, from the Palatinate to Saxony, from Bremen to South Germany. But I assumed no leading posts either in the Russian party or in the German party. By and large, I was mainly a popular orator and an esteemed political writer. I can now openly confess that in the Russian party, I deliberately kept somewhat aloof from the controlling center. And that is explainable mainly by the fact that I was not yet in complete agreement with the policy of my comrades. But I had no desire to pass over to the Bolsheviks, nor could I, for that matter, since at the time, it seemed to me as if they did not attach sufficient importance to the development of the working class movement in breadth and depth. Therefore, I worked on my own, seemingly almost as though I wanted to remain in the background without setting my sights or obtaining a leading position. Here it must be admitted that, although I possessed a certain degree of ambition, like any other active human being, I was never animated by the desire to obtain a post. For me, what I am was always of less importance than what I can. That is to say, what I was in a position to accomplish. In this way, I, too, had my ambition, and it was especially noticeable. There where I stood, with my whole heart and soul in the struggle, where the issue was the abolition of the slavery of working women. I had, above all, set myself the task of winning over women workers in Russia to socialism, and, at the same time, of working for the liberation of woman, for her equality of rights. My book, The Social Foundation of the Women's Question, had appeared shortly before my flight. It was a polemical disputation with the bourgeois suffragettes, but at the same time, a challenge to the party to build a viable women workers movement in Russia. The book enjoyed great success. At that time, I wrote for the legal and illegal press. Through an exchange of letters, I tried to influence party comrades and women workers themselves. Naturally, I always did this in such a way that I demanded from the party that it espoused the cause of women's liberation. I did not always have an easy time of it. Much passive resistance, little understanding, and even less interest for this aim, over and over again, lay as an obstacle in the path. It was not until 1914, shortly before the outbreak of the World War, that finally both factions, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, 
took up the question in an earnest and practical way, a fact which had on me an effect almost tantamount to a personal commendation. Two periodicals for working women were launched in Russia. The International Working Women's Congress of March 8, 1914 was celebrated. I was still living in exile, however, and could help the so dearly loved women workers movement in my homeland only from afar. I was in close contact, also from afar, with the working women of Russia. Already several years earlier, I had been appointed by the Textile Workers Union as an official delegate to the Second International Conference of Socialist Women, 1910, and further to the extraordinary International Socialist Congress in Baal in 1912. Later, when a draft of a bill on social insurance was introduced in the Russian pseudo-parliament, the Duma, the Social Democratic Duma faction of the Menshevik wing requested me to elaborate the draft of a bill on maternity welfare. It was not the first time that the faction lay claim to my energies for legislative work. Just before I was forced to go into exile, I had been enlisted by them, as a qualified expert, to participate in the deliberation of the question of Finland for the Imperial Duma. The task that had been assigned to me, namely, the elaboration of a draft of a bill in the field of maternity welfare, motivated me to undertake a most thorough study of this special question. The Bund für Mutterschutz and the outstanding work of Dr. Helena Stoker also provided me with valuable suggestions. Nevertheless, I also studied the question in England, France, and the Scandinavian countries. The result of these studies was my book, Motherhood and Society, a comprehensive work of 600 pages on maternity welfare and the relevant legislation in Europe and Australia. The fundamental regulations and demand in this field, which I summed up at the end of my book, were realized later in 1917 by the Soviet regime in the first social insurance laws. For me, the years of political emigration were hectic, quite stirring years. I traveled as a party orator from country to country. In 1911, in Paris, I organized the housewives' strike, La Grève des Ménagères, against the high cost of living. In 1912, I worked in Belgium setting the groundwork for the miners' strike in the Bohinage, and in the same year the party dispatched me to the left-oriented Socialist Youth Association of Sweden in order to strengthen the party's anti-militaristic tendencies. Several years earlier, this still merits mention here, I fought in the ranks of the British Socialist Party side-by-side side with Dora Montefiore and Madame Kolch against the English suffragettes for the strengthening of the still-fledgling Socialist Working Women's Movement. In 1913, I was again in England. This time I was there in order to take an active part in a protest action against the famous Bailey trial, which had been investigated by the anti-Semites in Russia. In the spring of the same year, the left wing of the Swedish Social Democratic Party invited me to Sweden. These were truly hectic years, marked by the most varied types of militant activity. Notwithstanding, my Russian party comrades also laid claim to my energies and appointed me delegate to the Socialist Party and Trade Union Congress. Thus, with the help of Karl Liebknecht, I also sparked an activity in Germany on behalf of the deported socialist members of the Duma. In 1911, I was called to the Russian Party School in Bologna, where I delivered a series of lectures. The present Russian Minister of Education in Soviet Russia, A. Lunacharsky, Maxim Gorky, as well as the famous Russian economist and philosopher A. Bogdanov, were the founders of this party school, and Trotsky delivered lectures at the school at the same time that I was there. The present Soviet Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs, G. Shishirin, who at that time worked as secretary of a relief agency for political refugees, 
oftentimes called upon me to hold public lectures on the most disparate cultural problems of Russian life, in order to help fill the relief agency's almost empty kitty. At his behest, I traveled all over Europe, but Berlin was my fixed abode. I felt at home in Germany, and have always greatly appreciated the conditions there, so ideally suited for scientific work. But I was not allowed to give speeches in Prussia. On the contrary, I had to keep as quiet as possible to avoid expulsion by the Prussian police. Then, the world war broke out, and once again I arrived at a new turning point in my life. But before I talk about this important period of my intellectual existence, I still want to say a few words about my personal life. The question rises whether in the middle of all these manifold, exciting labors and party assignments, I could still find time for intimate experiences, for the pangs and joys of love. Unfortunately, yes. I say unfortunately because ordinarily these experiences entailed all too many cares, disappointments, and pain, and because all too many energies were pointlessly consumed through them. Yet the longing to be understood by a man down to the deepest, most secret recesses of one's soul, to be recognized by him as a striving human being, repeatedly decided matters, and repeatedly disappointment ensued all too swiftly, since the friend saw in me only the feminine element which he tried to mold into a willing sounding board to his own ego. So repeatedly the moment inevitably arrived in which I had to shake off the chains of community with an aching heart, but with a sovereign, uninfluenced will. Then I was, again, alone. But the greater demands life made upon me, the more responsible work waiting to be tackled, the greater grew the longing to be enveloped by love, warmth, understanding. All the easier, consequently, began the old story of the disappointment in love, the old story of Tatiana in A Midsummer Night's Dream. The outbreak of the World War found me in Germany. My son was with me. We were both arrested because my identity papers were not in order. During the house search, however, the police found a mandate from the Russian Social Democratic Party appointing me as a delegate to the World Congress of Socialists. Suddenly, the gentleman from Alexander Platz became utterly charming. They figured that a female social democrat could not be a friend of the Tsar and consequently not an enemy of Germany. They were right. I was in fact no enemy of Germany and still less a Russian patriot. To me, the war was an abomination, a madness, a crime. And from the first moment onwards, more out of impulse than reflection, I inwardly rejected it and could never reconcile myself with it up to this very moment. The intoxication of patriotic feelings has always been something alien to me. On the contrary, I felt an aversion for everything that smacked of super patriotism. I found no understanding for my anti-patriotic attitude among my own Russian party comrades who also lived in Germany. Only Karl Liebknecht, his wife Sophie Liebknecht, and a few other German party comrades like myself espoused to the same standpoint and, like myself, considered it a socialist duty to struggle against the war. Strange to say, I was present in the Reichstag on August 4th, the day the war budget was being voted on. The collapse of the German Socialist Party struck me as a calamity without parallel. I felt utterly alone and found comfort only in the company of the Liebknechts. With the help of some German party friends, I was able to leave Germany with my son in August of 1914 and emigrate to the Scandinavian Peninsula. I left Germany not because I had felt the slightest manifestation of unfriendliness towards me, but only for the reason that without a sphere of activity, I would have been forced to live in idleness in that country. I was impatient to take up the struggle against the war. After arriving on Sweden's neutral soil, I immediately began the work against the war and for the international solidarity of the world working class. 
An appeal to working women made its way, along illegal channels, to Russia and to different other countries. In Sweden I wrote and spoke against the war. I spoke at public meetings, most of which had been called by the leftist-leaning world-famous Swedish party leaders Zeta Hoagland and Frederick Strong. I found in them the pure echo of my ideas and feelings, and we joined forces in a common task for the victory of internationalism and against the war hysteria. It was only later that I learned of the attitude which the leading minds of the Russian party had taken towards the war. When the news finally reached us, by way of Paris and Switzerland, it was for us a day of ineffable joy. We received assurance that both Trotsky and Lenin, although they belonged to different factions of the party, had militantly risen up against the war. Thus I was no longer isolated. A new grouping was proposed in the party, the internationalists and the social patriots. A party periodical was also founded in Paris. In the middle of my zealous activities, however, I was arrested by the Swedish authorities and brought to the Kungsholm prison. The worst moment during this arrest was born of my concern over the identity papers of a good friend and party comrade, Alexander Shlapnikov, who had just arrived illegally in Sweden from Russia, which I had taken over for safekeeping. Under the eyes of the police, I managed to hide them under my blouse and somehow make them disappear. Later, I was transferred from the Kungsholm prison to the prison in Malmö and then banished to Denmark. As far as I know, I was one of the first European socialists to be jailed because of the anti-war propaganda. In Denmark, I continued my work, but with greater prudence. Nevertheless, the Danish police did not leave me in peace, nor did the Danish Social Democrats exhibit friendliness for the internationalists. In February of 1915, I emigrated to Norway, where, together with Alexander Shlapnikov, we served as a link between Switzerland, the place of residence of Lenin and of the Central Committee, and Russia. We had full contact with the Norwegian socialists. On March 8th of the same year, I tried to organize an international working women's demonstration against the war in Christiania, now Oslo, but the representatives from the belligerent countries did not show up. That was the time when the decisive rupture in the social democracy was being prepared, since the patriotically minded socialists could not go along with the internationalists. Since the Bolsheviks were those who most consistently fought social patriotism, in June of 1915 I officially joined the Bolsheviks and entered into a lively correspondence with Lenin. Lenin's letters to me have recently been published in Russia. I again began to do a prodigious amount of writing, this time for the international-minded press of the most different countries. England, Norway, Sweden, America, Russia. At this time, one of my pamphlets, Who Profits from the War, appeared. Deliberately written in a very popular view, it was disseminated in countless editions, in millions of copies, and was translated into several languages, German included. So long as the war continued, the problem of women's liberation obviously had to recede into the background, since my only concern, my highest aim, was to fight against the war and call a new workers' international into being. In the autumn of 1915, the German section of the American Socialist Party invited me to journey to America, to deliver lectures there in the spirit of Zimmerwald, a gathering of international-minded socialists. I was immediately ready to cross the ocean for this purpose, despite the fact that my friends determinedly advised me against it. They were all deeply worried about me because the journey had become very hazardous as a result of submarine warfare, but the aim enticed me enormously. My propaganda tour in America lasted five months, during which time I visited 81 cities in the United States and delivered lectures in German, French, and Russian. The work was extremely strenuous, but also as fruitful 
and I had warrant to believe that, as a result, the internationalists in the American party were strengthened. Much opposition to the war, passionate debates, also existed overseas, but the police did not bother me. The newspapers, by turns, branded me either as a spy of the German Kaiser or as an agent of the Entente. I returned to Norway in the spring of 1916. I love Norway, with its incomparable fjords and its majestic mountains, its courageous, gifted, and industrious people. At that time, I lived on the famous Holmenkollen, near Oslo, and continued to work with the view of welding together all the forces of the internationalists in opposition to the World War. I shared Lenin's view, which aimed at spreading the conviction that the war could be defeated only by the revolution, by the uprising of the workers. I was in substantial agreement with Lenin and stood much closer to him than many of his older followers and friends. But my sojourn in Norway was not a long one because only a few months after my arrival I had to embark upon a second journey to America, where I remained till shortly before the outbreak of the Russian Revolution. For me, the situation in America had changed insofar as, in the meanwhile, many Russian party comrades had come over, Trotsky among others. We worked zealously for the new Workers International, but America's intervention in the war aggravated our activity. I had already been in Norway for several weeks when the Russian people rose up against absolutism and dethroned the Tsar. A festive mood reigned among all our political friends, but I harbored no illusions because I knew that the overthrow of the Tsar would only be the beginning of even more momentous events and difficult social struggles. So I hastened back to Russia in March 1917. I was one of the first political emigrants who came back to the liberated homeland. Tornio, the tiny frontier town lying north of the Swedish-Finnish frontiers through which I had to pass, was still in the grip of a cruel winter. A sleigh carried me across the river which marks the frontier. On Russian soil stood a toddler, a bright red ribbon fluttered on his chest. Your identity papers, please, citizeness. I have none. I am a political refugee. Your name? I identified myself. A young officer was summoned. Yes, my name was on the list of political refugees who were to be freely admitted into the country by order of the Workers' and Soldiers' Soviet. The young officer helped me out of the sleigh and kissed my hand almost reverently. I was standing on the Republican soil of liberated Russia. Could that be possible? It was one of the happiest hours of my whole life. Four months later, by order of the Kerensky regime, the provisional government, the same charming young officer placed me under arrest as a dangerous Bolshevik at the Tornio Frontier Station. Such is life's irony. End of the section entitled The Years of Political Emigration. Stay tuned for part three, The Years of Revolution.